Let's pray together. Our Father, as we open your word, we would ask for insight, for conviction of the truth of your word, and the courage to apply it to our lives and the lives of our families and friends. Our Father, we would ask that you would be our teacher through this Holy Spirit um, as we open the scriptures. For the honor of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. We are in, uh, looking at the Westminster Confession, chapter 24. It's printed in your bulletin in the order of worship, or it's also in the back of the hymnal, chapter 24. And we're looking at sections 5 and 6 tonight on this very important, very necessary subject of divorce and remarriage. Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, writes, For the past 40 years, the leading marriage indicators in the U.S. have been in steady decline. The divorce rate is nearly twice the rate it was in 1960. In 1970, 89% of all births were to married parents, but today only 60% are. Most tellingly, over 72% of American adults were married in 1960, but only 50% were in 2008. Probably nearly everyone here today has been affected by the subject of divorce with friends or extended family. It's a very difficult, very personally painful subject. I know it's one of the most difficult aspects I had in pastoral counseling over the years to be meeting with a couple on such pain considering divorce. We all need to know what the scripture says about divorce and if someone divorced, if they can remarry. There's a great need in the evangelical church for evangelicals to know what the scriptures teach. Um, In the past, I've had couples come for counseling, and uh, one or both with a divorce in their past, and yet they're proceeding to engagement and to marriage as if, of, of course, we're getting married, never even considering the question, May they biblically marry or not after a divorce? What do the scriptures teach? We don't get our rules from the world, but from scriptures. What does the scripture say? The scripture is truth for all cultures, all times, all of Christ's disciples for all denominations. It's always the temptation to either add or take away. That's why that warning is so often in scripture. And it seems in this particular area of divorce, you're either going to be unbalanced either way. You're either going to be more restrictive to scripture, adding to scripture, and maybe it's an emotional reaction to the culture's permissiveness. Or there's going to be a toleration of divorce less than what scripture says. Maybe it's because we're getting jaded that divorce is so common. And it's really no big deal, the world tells us. But what does the scripture say? That's what we have to be thinking clearly, and that's what we have to use as the standard. Reading, then, in the confession, sections 5 and 6. Adultery or fornication committed after engagement, if detected before marriage, gives valid reason to the innocent party to break the engagement. In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to seek a divorce and after the divorce to remarry, just as if the offending party were dead. In the context of writing the Westminster Confession, engagement was already a legal contract, and this is teaching how to break that legal contract. 
We'll be looking at section 6 tonight. Although the corruption of mankind is such that people are apt to seek arguments to justify unward and separation of those whom God has joined together in marriage, nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as cannot be remedied by the church or the civil authorities is sufficient cause to dissolve the bond of marriage. In such cases, a public and orderly procedure is to be observed, and the persons concerned are not to be left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. So let's look at the scriptures tonight. God's word tells us, look at three things. The biblical general rule is no divorce. The biblical exception for divorce is sexual immorality. And third, the biblical exception for divorce is desertion. So first, the biblical general rule is no divorce. Section six in the confession, nothing but. Here's, there are exceptions to the rule, but the rule is no divorce. Look how Christ taught this quite clearly in Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. And Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. How does Jesus answer the question? He's, he quotes Genesis 1, 27. He's teaching the creation ordinance of marriage is still valid. It's still standing. It's still God's original and best design for marriage. One man, one woman with no unfaithfulness, no stagnation for life. And it's not to be broken by divorce. And that still is the standard, Jesus said, quite clearly. And that includes no annulment. There's no such category in Scripture. The only way to break, legitimate, break a marriage is by divorce, if there are the biblical exceptions. But there's never a reason for an annulment. And evangelicals need to show the same determination to hold forth God's truth against no divorce as they do other sins of sexual immorality. For sexual immorality and divorce both violate the creation ordinance of marriage. The laws in the United States for divorce prior to 1969 were very similar to the Westminster Confession, Chapter 24. Modern concept of no-fault divorce was first signed into law in 1969 by then Governor of California, Ronald Reagan. He was the first to take the covenant breaking out of a concept of divorce. I understand later that he regretted doing this because he saw the great harm that he caused, but I haven't been able to validate that. Very soon after he signed the law, 45 states followed within five years, and today all 50 states have some form of no-fault divorce, using the phrase irreconcilable differences. No proof is needed, just claim irreconcilable differences. Today, marriage is the easiest contract to break. No other engagement can be broken with less formality or fewer legal consequences, because divorce is no longer considered sin. 
It's something that God hates, Malachi 2.16. Today, divorce is just viewed as a, as a way to, fast way to fix problems or boredom. But Christians can never even hint at divorce. Never, ever threaten your spouse with divorce. Never make a joke about it. Not even consider it. A couple should never say in arguments, well, maybe we should just not get, maybe we should never have married. Maybe we should part ways. Divorce is sin. It's no different than somebody holding up a loaded gun to somebody's head saying you're going to kill them and later say, oh, I wasn't serious. Divorce is an attack upon God's design and God's image, and it is a sin. Malachi 2.15, guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. God hates divorce. And so God's people are to hate divorce. Jim Conway in his book, Adult Children of Legal or Emotional Divorce, writes, quote, divorce is almost worse than murder itself. At least with murder, you kill the victim quickly. With divorce, all parties involved suffer lifelong damaging effects to the emotions and self-esteem at the deepest level. This is like a slow death, end of quote. What an opportunity in our broken world for Christians to hold forth the truth of God's word in love and kindness to a broken world. The church is to be a hospital and of great God's great grace. Christ clearly teaches, here's the rule, no divorce. The apostles repeat the same rule. Turn to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 15, the Apostle Paul is writing. 1 Corinthians 7, 10, to the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. What that means is when the Lord was, um, during his earthly ministry, the Lord did speak about this. So Paul is saying, I didn't. I didn't say this first. Christ said this when he, when he was here on earth. He spoke to the subject about divorce between two believers. And, and so Paul says, I'm, I'm giving this charge or order or command, but it's really Christ's order and command mandate. He's the one that said this, that the wife should not separate from her husband. In the New Testament world, the, the word Separate is a synonym for divorce. The word separate in scripture uh, is not the way we use the word today of two people who are still married but living apart in separate places. Uh, to be separated, that's, that wasn't even a concept in the Roman world. In the Roman world, there was no legal divorce. You just separated. You just walked away. There's no legal divorces and so to separate is to divorce, which leads to the state of being unmarried. You see it in verse 11. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried. She separated and became unmarried. That's divorce. 
or else be reconciled to her husband, and this husband should not divorce his wife. There's just using another word for what we're talking about. Separating is divorce, and it should not be. So down in verse 12, to the rest, I say, I not the Lord. In other words, the Lord didn't address this subject of a marriage with a believer and an unbeliever when he was here on earth, but I will. So now I am speaking, and he is speaking with the authority of the apostle. It's not just his opinion. You can take it or leave it. He's commanding this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's teaching according to the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians seven forty, so that everything he would write is a command of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 14.37. And what does the apostle Paul say under the inspiration, the authority, to the rest I say, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. It's the same standard for two believers. There's no divorce. That's the rule. For the Christian married to an unbeliever, the rule is the same, no divorce. Both Christ on earth and the disciples repeat, here is the biblical general rule, no divorce. Staying married, therefore, is not about staying in love. It certainly is not you always feeling happy. It's about keeping covenant till death do us part, or as long as we both shall live. It's a sacred covenant promise, the same kind Jesus with his bride when he died for her. Therefore, what makes divorce and remarriage so horrific in God's eyes is not merely that it involves covenant breaking to the spouse, but that it involves misrepresenting Christ and his covenant. Christ will never leave his wife, ever. There may be times of painful distance and tragic backsliding on our part, but Christ keeps his covenant forever. Marriage is a display of that. That is the most ultimate thing we can say about it, John Piper writes. And he continues, staying married is not about staying in love, it's about covenant keeping. If a spouse falls in love with another person, one profoundly legitimate response from the grieved spouse and from the church is... So what? Keep your covenant. And Keller writes, we marry another sinner. There's no such thing as two perfectly compatible people. And a good marriage will take work and investment. All who have a good long-term marriage is not because you married the perfectly compatible person. That person doesn't exist but it's because you went through seasons in which you had to learn to love a person you didn't marry, who was something of a stranger. You will have to have had made changes that you didn't want to make, and so will your spouse. And the good news is most, two-thirds of couples who were unhappy but who stayed married and worked on their marriages within five years will become happy, end of quote. That's led University of Chicago sociologist Linda Waite to say, quote, the benefits of divorce have been oversold. God's rule, his good rule, for believers, for believer and unbeliever, no divorce. Then secondly, 
the confession addresses, there is a biblical exception for divorce, and that is sexual immorality. Turn back to Matthew 19, and we'll also be looking at Matthew 5. Matthew 19 and verse 9 again, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And Matthew 5 and 31, Jesus said, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There's five principles in these verses here about this one exception for divorce of sexual immorality. And these five principles are these. First of all, the ground of divorce is for all sexual immorality. The word Jesus is using is pornea, which is an inclusive word for any sexual sin. It includes premarital sexual relations, as Joseph suspected Mary, Matthew 1.18. It includes sexual unfaithfulness. After already married, it would include adultery as a subset of this. And it's broader. It includes incest and bestiality, Leviticus 18.23, homosexuality, Leviticus 18.22, and Romans 1, and also prostitution, 1 Corinthians 6. Jesus is teaching any and all Sexual sin is, breaks the one flesh of marriage and becomes the legitimate ground for divorce. The second principle is that grounds for divorce is only for sexual immorality. Jesus is narrowing the Pharisees' day. You notice how they ask the question in Matthew 9, 3, uh, for any reason? They had lots of reasons. And Jesus says, oh, no, no, there's only one legitimate ground here. And his disciples were shocked. It was a very permissive day. And Jesus is saying, no, it's for sexual immorality. That's the exception for breaking the rule. And what was Jesus doing by that? Sexual immorality in the Old Testament, in Old Testament theocracy of Israel, would have required the death penalty. But now... God's people are under Rome, as Jesus was writing. They couldn't apply execution. They couldn't apply capital punishment. So Jesus is saying what in the Old Testament would have required the death penalty, now in my kingdom for sexual immorality, you are allowed divorce. Divorce is replacing the death penalty as if the person were dead. So in the Old Testament, if there was sexual immorality, Leviticus 20.10, there would be a death of the guilty spouse, and that would end the marriage because the person has died, and so therefore the widow or the widower could remarry, but not under Roman law. And now as the ceremony and civil laws have expired and the church is going into all nations. Jesus is saying divorce has the same effect. It's a judicial, it's a penal sentence of death as if the person had died. And it, Jesus is saying sexual immorality breaks the one covenant of marriage and so divorce then is the, the legal way of pursuing that what has already been done in sexual immorality. And so the innocent party 
is not inevitably not irrevocably bound to an adulterous spouse for the rest of their life. John Murray writes, sexual immorality is unequivocally stated to be the only legitimate ground for which a man may, be put, may put away his wife and a wife put away her husband. All, sex, all sexual immorality is the ground. And the third principle is that ground for divorce is also ground for remarriage. See the last phrase of section five, it's lawful for the innocent party to seek a divorce and after the divorce to remarry, just as if the offending party were dead. If it's a legitimate reason for a biblical divorce, that means it's also a legitimate reason biblically to remarry. The Roman Catholic Church took the position from Augustine and the canon law the Church of England followed. They used Matthew 19 and Matthew 5 to warrant a divorce for sexual immorality, but not give grounds for remarriage. But that was not the Protestant position, the historical reformed understanding. All the reformers, Luther, Melanchthon, Calvin, Beza, said the exception has to be for both. If it's a biblical reason to break the marriage of sexual immorality, then there is a, that is the ground for a biblical divorce and for the permission to remarry as long as the person is in the Lord. And then the past divorce is not a demerit of any kind. They are not, it's not a shame over their heads, and it certainly does not in, make them ineligible for church office, church membership, church service, and the life of Christ. The ground for biblical divorce is also ground for remarriage. But fourth principle, the ground for divorce is only offered as permission. It's not a requirement. In, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees' concept and law was that if there was sexual immorality, divorce was required. Jesus doesn't say it's required, and nowhere in Scripture does it say divorce is required. It's never going to be a desirable state. It's always going to be painful, even if it is a biblical divorce, even though the Scriptures may permitted, but it's permitted as an option. A couple where there has been the sins of sexual immorality, they may grant forgiveness, may seek counseling, there may be restoration, may be renewal, and um, humbly I have been um, so privileged in God's grace to see couples rebuild broken lives. We have an amazing God, an amazing great grace to restore uh, such a broken lives, but where sexual sin strikes at the foundation of the marriage and it so tears the covenant and so ruins that trust cannot be rebuilt. Even though forgiveness is granted, trust is not rebuilt, and therefore divorce is permitted, and there is no sin in such a divorce. And the person who chooses to divorce has the right to, to do so, and they're not to be viewed as less of a Christian because they couldn't stay in the marriage, because they couldn't rebuild their trust. Recall how Joseph, when he heard that his engaged, betrothed wife Mary was expecting, he assumed, well, it's because of sexual unfaithfulness and he was prepared to divorce her, and yet he's called a righteous man, even though he was prepared to divorce Mary, Matthew 1.19. God himself divorces Israel, his wife, for sexual sin, and no one would suggest that God is sinful. Jeremiah 3, 1 through 8. Grounds for sexual divorce is only offered as permission. It's not a requirement, and it's not sinful. 
And then Jesus' solemn, solemn warning, divorce, if it's not on biblical grounds, the divorce itself becomes sexual immorality. Matthew 19.9 and Matthew 5.32, any divorce between two people for any other reason than sexual immorality, and the apostles will add as an extension of the same principle, desertion, then that divorce itself becomes adultery, and anyone who marries an unbiblically divorced person commits adultery. Larger Catechism 139 asks, what are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are, and as a long list, adultery, fornication, and in the list is unjust divorce or unjust desertion. A Christian must not divorce on the grounds of irreconcilable differences or incompatibility or alcoholism or drugs or I've just reached the end of his addiction to gambling or we don't love each other anymore, we've just grown apart and you file for no fault. No, all those excuses for divorce are themselves sinful and divorce on those grounds becomes adultery, becomes breaking the seventh commandment. How often the elders in our broken world have had to help a couple go back. No one advised them. It may have been a biblical divorce, and maybe a lawyer said, oh, the easy way out is just claim no fault. If there is a grounds for a biblical divorce, then put those grounds down. These are the grounds, sexual immorality, sexual unfaithfulness, or desertion, so that later there would be the freedom to remarry. You must not marry anyone unbiblically divorced. That's what Jesus is saying, or you become guilty of adultery. It's a commandment of Christ. You can't give blessings to such marriages as a friend or a parent. You can't condone or give wedding showers. You love them. You tell them the truth. You weep for them. You pray for them. But you have to say the truth. Isn't it sad we're living in such an ungodly age that when you get an invitation to a wedding, you have to stop and think, Is this a biblical marriage? Can we even attend? If a professing Christian proceeds to divorce without biblical grounds of unrepentant sexual sin, Jesus says, then that divorce is itself the sin of sexual immorality and of unrepentant would warrant church discipline. R.C. Sproul's good counsel on this, quote, if there's a married couple in the church and one spouse files for divorce without biblical grounds, the church has a responsibility to step in and say, you can't do that. If the person persists in divorcing a spouse without just grounds, it's the duty of the church to discipline that person. The guilty spouse is to be disciplined to the point of excommunication in order to protect the innocent party and to allow the innocent party to remarry according to biblical law. Both Christ and the apostles clearly taught, here's the general rule, no divorce. Christ said, here's the exception for uh, for legitimate divorce, and that is sexual immorality. Now the apostle says, and there is one more, which is really an extension of breaking the marriage covenant, and that is in 1 Corinthians 7, Desertion. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 7. 
Paul is saying, I'm giving this charge. Remember his command. This is not just good advice. This is what the church must uphold. That desertion is breaking the covenant of marriage. Verse 12, to the rest I say, and the Lord didn't speak on this subject when he was here on earth, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If a woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. What is desertion? Desertion is breaking the covenant of marriage. And desertion, though, is broader than just physically leaving, packing a suitcase, and go living at a, in a separate apartment. If you look at the verse, it doesn't even say desertion. It says it doesn't consent to. That word is translated be willing. It's used six times in the New Testament to agree to, to give approval to, to consent to, to sympathize with, to be gratified, to have pleasure. The unbeliever must be willing, must want this marriage. And if he shows either in action or words or behavior that he doesn't want the marriage, it's desertion, even though he may not have left the house. Desertion is any pattern of words or attitudes or behavior that is saying de facto, I don't want this marriage. According to Exodus 21, that would include not providing clothing and shelter or board or sexual intimacy. Modern example might be the man who spends his whole paycheck gambling in Atlantic City. And so he's lost the mortgage. His wife and children are out on the streets. They have no money for food. Creditors are coming after them. That would be a good example for the wife to come to the elders and say, help me, isn't this desertion? And I believe it would be. Perkins and most of the Puritans define desertion broadly as all behavior that nullifies the marriage relationship in practice, quote, when they require from each other intolerable conditions, long absence, cruelty, diseased conditions, and insanity, end of quote. You can show by your actions as well as your words that you don't want to. You're not consenting to a marriage. It includes physical abuse, emotional abuse, cruelty, desire, uh, denial of intimacy, all ways that show I'm not in a covenant of faithfulness. I don't want a covenant of companionship. PCA reported their General Assembly, I think, was helpful, writes, quote, what is more, a husband's violence, particularly to the degree that it endangers his wife's safety or a wife's violence to a husband, if unremedy seems to us by any application of biblical norms to be as much a ruination of the marriage, in fact, is adultery or actual departure. This is so precisely because his violence separates them, either by her forced withdrawal from the home or by the profound cleavage between them, which the violence produces as surely as would his own departure, and is thus an expression of his unwillingness to consent to live with her in marriage." 
quickly, the Westminster Confession, the last phrase in section 6, adds this caution. In such cases, a public and orderly procedure is to be observed, and the persons concerned are not to be left to their own wills and discretion in their case. These two grounds, sexual immorality and desertion, do not ipso facto automatically run and get a lawyer, dissolve the marriage. It gives you the right to pursue them, and so what you need to do then is take it to the competent authority and ask them to dissolve it. Don't be left to their own discretion, Westminster says. They must seek the vindication at the hands of public authorities according to the law of the land, A.A. Hodge. In other words, don't go this alone. Certainly don't listen to your advice of your unsaved friends. Don't use your own emotions and judgment. You're too close to this. Use the church courts. We're living in a day you'd even be cautious to say use the civil authorities, but certainly the church courts. Get their help quickly. Run to the elders and say, I'm in a situation, I need help, diaconal help. Let's take the example of the man gambling. Right away there's an application of the deacons coming in and helping the spouse and her children. And the elders to say, The woman can come, here's the situation. Help me find justice. Isn't this a situation to take to the courts? Isn't this desertion? And I would hope the elders would say, yes, it certainly is. Desertion is breaking the covenant of marriage. Desertion is grounds then for divorce. 1 Corinthians 7.15, but if the unbelieving partner separates divorces, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not bound. You see what it says? Let it be so. It's a permissive imperative. You must not contest this, we would say in English. You must permit it. You must acquiesce. Let him separate. Don't contest it. If the person who is deserting does not want this marriage and is now beginning to talk divorce, You certainly tell the elders, and then you get a lawyer, and you sign the divorce papers, and you make it smooth. Jay Adams says, you go pack a suitcase and go open the door. You don't contest this. If an unbeliever wants to leave, a Christian is deserting. And desertion then is grounds for remarriage, 1 Corinthians 7.15. If the unbelieving partner separates divorce, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not Bound. God has called you to peace. Unbound is unmarried. Not bound is the ancient language of divorce contracts, a technical language. You're then free to remarry. If God is using this as a way to free this situation here of a believer from an unbeliever being yoked to darkness, being yoked to someone who doesn't love their Savior, You're free, let it be, consent to it. Isn't it interesting, there's no command here, there's not even a hint that in these situations, well, you must not remarry again. (laughs) No, rather, the Christian who is deserted, he or she is then free to divorce and remarry as though the unbeliever were dead. These are the two grounds that the scripture gives for legitimate divorce as an exception to the general rule of no divorce. And these two grounds have to be protected. We can't be 
more narrow than scripture and say no divorce at all, but we can't be more permissive than the scriptures and start allowing for divorce for other reasons than only these two grounds. Charles Hodge, quote, nothing but adultery or willful desertion is a legitimate ground of divorce because the scriptures allow of no other grounds. These are difficult things to hear, aren't they? These scriptures sound so contrary to our world where divorce just seems a personal right. Everyone should support people who are going for divorce because they're so unhappy, as if being happy just trumps everything. According to a world podcast, 84% of Americans For for 84% of Americans, the meaning to life is to make yourself happy. 86% of Americans, to live the happy life is to do what you desire most. 91% of Americans, to find answers to life, you look within. We're living in a world where being happy trumps everything. (laughs) If you're not happy in this marriage... Get a divorce, and people who don't support you are being unkind. But believers, we need to hold to God's word. Yes, we hold it with grace and with kindness, but we need to push back against people rushing to divorce and challenge them to conform to Scripture with great sensitivity to hurt and pain, absolutely, but we offer genuine care and hope. Here's God's good pattern. We must obey God's word by faith, and sometimes we won't be happy. We'll genuinely find joy in the long run. God's word will bring his blessing, but at the time, it may be very hard to hear. Amy Carmichael, missionary to India, wrote, If you have never been hurt by a word from God, it is probable that you have never heard God speak. These are difficult things to hear. But they're also very hopeful. Because if the scriptures are saying these are the only two exceptions, what does that mean? That means there's hope for anything else that comes into a marriage that's difficult. There's hope for healing and change and growth and life. Because divorce is not an option, the back door is closed. So let's get to work. Let's find help. Divorce is not the option, and silent suffering is not an option either. And when you can't solve the trouble yourselves, you get biblical counsel from the body of Christ. To modern ears, the world just accepts divorce as a way out of an unhappy relationship and sees divorce as a kind way to help. It's not a kind way to help. We stress God offers a genuine way to grow in your life. If there's a sinful divorce and remarriage in your past, and my counsel is to address it as sin, to repent, to get help with godly counsel, what needs to be sorted through is asking for forgiveness of the other spouse, then no minimizing, no ignoring it. Bring things to light, clean up as best you can, and then you come to the point, after confessing your sin, you embrace the forgiveness of Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. 
including adultery and unbiblical divorce. They're not the unpardonable sins. In John 4, Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman and he, who was already divorced and living in sexual immorality, and he brought her the good news of living water. Repent and come to me and believe in me. Here is life. And in Christ, there is forgiveness and mercy and, and full pardon. And this is the challenge for those of you who are married. Will you determine by God's grace that nothing's going to break your marriage covenant? You're going to, put, you're going to work. You're going to strengthen it. You're going to cherish. You're going to get help. Never just be passive in a failing marriage. Never be silent. When an elder's visit comes along, the elders ask, how's your marriage? And you stay silent and there's trouble. Get help. You don't get help after there's treat, when it reaches the point of triage. You get help when it's the beginning and it's not healthy. And you take every opportunity to invest and grow your marriage. You model older Christians. You take marriage seminars. Even if it's just one thing you're learning, even if it's just to reinforce what you're already doing right. If your spouse asks for counseling, you say, oh, be glad to, because you want it. You read good books, you keep discussing. How can we improve? How can we invest? No one puts investments in a, in a bank blindly. You do research and you keep abreast. How are things happening? You try to improve your investments. Well, marriage is the greatest investment of your life. And you who are single and young people, be careful in preparing for marriage. You only enter marriage in the Lord to another believer after much prayer, after much counsel, not on a whim. This is a lifelong decision, and there's not divorce when the going gets tough. And it's not like dating. You just break up when you don't like each other. You make sure your fiancé is a godly man or woman, strong in the Lord. What a call for us all to be praying for the marriages in the church, for those who desire to marry. It's difficult to live godly lives in this generation. And it's difficult to have a godly marriage, but it's obedience to the Lord, and he will bless, and his grace will be more than sufficient for all of our needs. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you that you have brought us to yourself, and you have brought us, uh, many of us, um, having already been broken by this world, but yet your grace has been great grace that has forgiven and cleansed and restored. Our Father, we pray that we will all cherish what you cherish, we will hate what you hate, we will um, put the work into humbly confessing our sins to one another, wanting to grow, wanting to learn, wanting to serve one another in Christ. And may the world, as they look on, see the example between husband and wife of the Savior and his church and his love for her. Our Father, we pray that as we have studied your word, that you would file it away in our hearts, and may we be able to answer clearly uh, to those in this generation who do not know your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.